this week in KMA Land. More pros and cons on Page County wind turbines. Fremont County mourns McAllister's passing. Page County COVID numbers on the rise. Montgomery County hears carbon pipeline inspection pitch. And Shenandoah Council sets voluntary annexation. I'm Mike Peterson. Another week, another episode of As the Turbine Turns in Page County. This week, both opponents and proponents of wind turbines made their respective cases for a proposed wind turbine project. At a regular meeting Tuesday evening, the county's Board of Supervisors discussed Invenergy Shenandoah Hills Wind Farm Project with Page County Horizons and their continued concerns of the company's permit application. Marianne Gibson is a landowner in the Lincoln and Morton Townships. Gibson asked the board who would hold Invenergy or a respective project owner accountable for complaints filed by residents or companies such as KYFR for signal interference. The ordinance states that the owner-operator, which is Invenergy or a company to which they sell the project, receives a written complaint and takes reasonable steps to respond. My question is, what next if the issue isn't resolved? That's not spelled out in the ordinance. Have you, have you thought about or who would, where would that issue go? Who would be responsible? Additionally, with just a few months left of the 180-day moratorium on commercial wind project applications established in late March, Gibson proposed a task force or committee comprised of board members and residents to review the ordinance. To me, that seems like a reasonable process. There are many people who have been reviewing, researching, studying the matter, looking at ordinances from you know, around the country, other places in Iowa, and I think there would be people who would be willing to contribute time and energy toward the process. Supervisor Chuck Morris, along with the other board members, said they would be open to a committee that could work within the next 60 days to potentially reach an agreement on changes. During the meeting's public comment period, the board also heard from a proponent of wind energy. While not a county resident, Lisa Lawrence says she was speaking on behalf of several residents in the county, claiming they had been bullied or coerced to withdraw their land from the project. One concern many residents raise is how companies dispose of the turbine blades, typically made of fiberglass. Lawrence says companies in the United States continue to find different ways to recycle the blades, including global fiberglass solutions, which converts the material into eco-poly pellets. Pellets can be transformed into a variety of products, such as warehouse pellets, flooring material, or parking bollards. Based on its demand forecast, global fiberglass solutions anticipates being able to process six to 7,000 blades per year at each of its two plants. And you want to guess where those plants are? One's in Texas and the other is right here in Iowa. The Iowa plant is located in Newton. Additionally, Lawrence's companies such as Mid-American Energy are partnering with Carbon Rivers Incorporated out of Tennessee to recycle the turbines rather than landfilling them through grant funding from the U.S. Department of Energy. Fremont County residents mourn the passing of a county official this week. Funeral services take place today for longtime Fremont County recorder Jennifer McAllister, who died last Friday after battling cancer for more than a year. She was 46. A lifelong Fremont County resident, McAllister worked in the county recorder's office for 24 years, the past 11 as recorder. She was also a staunch member of the Farragut Fire Department for 24 years and taught hunter safety courses. In a 2018 Meet the 
candidates interview, McAllister told KMA News she sought re-election because she enjoyed the job. I enjoy seeing the people and just helping the public. Um, we sell hunting and fishing licenses. We do an array of things, birth, death, marriage certificates, land transfers, hunting and fishing. It's just something new every day. One of McAllister's challenges was to keep the department's finances under budget. However, she said it wasn't too difficult. I pretty much know ahead of time what our uh, maintenance fees and things like that are going to be, you know, for computer programmers. Um, we allow electronic filing of documents. So we have maintenance fees and things that have to be paid. So I pretty much know ahead of time. So easy to manage that budget. Fremont County Supervisor's Chair Randy Hickey is among those paying tribute to McAllister, calling her an excellent official. She's going to be missed thoroughly. You know, my heart goes out for the family. You know, she was great to work with. Jenny was great to work with. McAllister was running for her fourth term at the time of her passing. In accordance with Iowa Code, Hickey says the supervisors must appoint her successor. Because it's after the primary and it's so many days before the election, Supervisors are going to have to appoint somebody for that position. We're going to put it out or add, you know, put out the position. And then after that, we got 40 days to fill that position. McAllister's funeral takes place at 10 this morning at the Waterfalls venue at 907 Hartford Avenue in Farragut with interment in the Farragut Cemetery. Developments on two major issues took place at this week's Montgomery County Board of Supervisors meeting. First, county officials continue to explore inspection services for a proposed carbon pipeline project. Officials with Snyder & Associates made their pitch to the supervisors Tuesday morning. Christina Paradise, a construction technician based in Snyder & Associates' Fort Dodge office, outlined the company's services and responsibilities with inspecting Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed CO2 pipeline planned for a good portion of western Iowa. Paradise says she would serve as the company's main point of contact during the inspection process. I've been following the IUB filings pretty closely and I'm aware there's quite a bit of controversy and I own property in Iowa. I wouldn't want the pipeline coming across my property either, you know, so I have a lot of empathy for the landowners and, and we intend to inspect this project like it was our own property. Paradise says one issue is that Summit has yet to specify the pipelines through, through Montgomery County. They don't have a definite route through Montgomery County yet. I mean, there's a map that shows it going north and south, but it, it, the other counties, we're able to get track information off the maps. And for Montgomery County, we're not able to do that because it, it's like they have not definitively said this is where we're going to be. But that was an interesting fact. This is the only county that I've seen like that. In addition to holding public meetings with affected landowners, Paradise says the company would conduct intensive team training with staff members to ensure services are performed thoroughly and extensively. She says the company would observe and document the pipeline's construction activities and would issue stop work orders if work is not proceeding according to specification. In turn, Paradise urges the supervisors to approve a resolution setting the county's specific pipeline regulations. If Montgomery County does not have a resolution in place, I encourage you to put a resolution in place specifying your, the depth of cover over this pipeline, what's going to happen with your drainage tiles, with your district tiles and with private tiles. All of that. I encourage you to spell that out. After considerable discussion, the supervisors took no action on the inspection proposal. Supervisor Donna Robinson says the board must review information from other companies expressing interest in providing inspection services in recent months.
Uh, the carbon pipeline issue is still hot in Montgomery County. Alterations to the county's solar energy ordinance are now in place. Earlier this week, the county's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved the second reading of proposed amendments to the county's ordinance governing future solar projects. Board members then waived the amendment's third reading, putting the proposed changes into effect. Members of the county's Planning and Zoning Commission proposed the changes following a series of meetings. Those changes received support from at least one rural advocacy group. Prior to the board's vote, Supervisor Donna Robinson read a letter from Nick Summers, policy organizing assistant with the Center for Rural Affairs, praising the county for making adjustments to its ordinance. It's important that the counties create a balanced solar ordinance in advance of proposed development. The time and effort that Montgomery County has put into crafting an ordinance that balances the interests of community members and developers is precinct. And the recent, excuse me, proposed changes show a commitment to developing an ordinance that works well for all affected parties. Robinson says the letter voiced support for specific changes, including one addressing the county's solar decommissioning regulations. The inclusion of a provision for periodic updates to the decommissioning plan allows for a more effective and responsive plan that can adapt to any changes that could occur over the lifespan of the project. The requirements of a road use agreement help to protect the infrastructure that local residents rely on. Additionally, Summers' letter noted setback regulation amendments. Setbacks are a key part of any solar siting ordinance, and the 100 to 200 foot setbacks from occupied residences for utility-scale solar installations are ideal for balancing the interests of landowners and developments. However, Robinson says the letter questioned language, including a native vegetation requirement in the ground cover section, which is designed to improve not only soil quality, but also provide habitat for native species, including pollinators. While the language of the proposed changes encourages this practice and adds flexibility to the ordinance, it limits the ability of the county to enforce the suggestion. Language that explicitly requires native vegetation would guarantee the environmental benefits associated with this practice. Overall, Summers' letter praised the supervisors for their diligence in responding to concerns of constituents and other stakeholders. He also expressed confidence that the county's deliberative process in formulating the amendments will result in a balanced, effective ordinance allowing the county and its residents to take advantage of solar development. Recent summer activities are the catalyst for an uptick in Page County's COVID-19 cases. That's according to Page County Public Health Administrator Richard Mullen, who told KMA News the county reported 21 new COVID cases last week. In comparison, only nine cases reported throughout the entire month of June. However, Mullen adds the county reported zero hospitalizations this month due to COVID. Mullen says the increase in case numbers is likely connected to an influx of the typical summer gatherings. July is a huge vacation month. I've had several calls where people who were in town visiting visiting grandparents and things like that, and then, then you know one of the family members visiting were asymptomatic and didn't realize they had COVID, which then contracted it to one of the grandparents or both the grandparents and those types of things like that. So it's um, in, you know the fairs are going on. People are getting out there and being in closer proximity of one another. He adds the case number does not reflect any at-home positive tests, which aren't required for reporting to the county. On a positive note, Mullen says just over 58% of the county received at least one dose of a COVID vaccination as of earlier this week. In addition, the Centers for Disease Control reported 54% of the county as fully vaccinated. Mullen says the vaccine numbers are one indication of individuals being aware of the virus, which has remained relatively low. People are really aware of the importance of getting vaccinated and staying up on their boosters and being really 
aware of what, uh, and very intentional on what they're doing, you know, especially around other people and, and where they're traveling, you know, and people are planning vacations and they're checking the, the COVID rates in other areas. And so they're just making this part of their kind of their natural life now. While the increase may not be the most significant, Mullen says it is a good reminder that COVID hasn't gone away. Will it be around for a long time? You know, that's to be determined. But, you know, it's going to be one of those things that we have to constantly be aware of and making sure that we make those those appropriate choices and those appropriate adjustments to our life if we aren't feeling well you know, we don't longer go to work. You don't, you don't, you don't go out in the public, especially if you're testing positive for COVID. And- Peach County vaccine clinics are August 9th and the 23rd from 4 to 5 p.m. Everything from voluntary annexation to movie making got a Tuesday night Shenandoah City Council meeting. At its regular meeting Tuesday evening, the council set a public hearing for August 9th at 6 p.m. on the voluntary annexation of future and existing business properties. Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman told KMA News, officials with Community First Credit Union at 700 South Fremont Street requested annexation into city limits. The issue that would have created was that 602 South Fremont, which is half of uh, Healthy Tales, there is not in incorporated Shenandoah currently. It was, it was part of Fremont County. So had we only annexed where the Skateland slash Community First property, we would have created an island of unincorporated Fremont County, which the state does not allow us to do. Lyman says annexing both properties allows the city to update its urban renewal plan. We need to get that done in order to uh, uh, wrap up our amendment to our urban renewal plan. We're working on a variety of projects there, so we need to get this this box checked so that we can do other things on down the road. Council members also approved a bevy of street closures, including for South Elm Street from 9th Avenue south of the Forest Park entrance this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and August 14th from 6 to 11 p.m., and the alleyway behind the Legacy 3 Theater September 10th from 6 to 11 p.m. Lyman says Megan and Dustin Matson requested the closures for filming of a sequel to their previous movie, Tapehead. You know, they're really excited about it. I know a couple weeks ago they had some cones out and they were shooting some scenes there in front of their, their home there on Elm Street. They've just got a few more nights where they want to do some filming uh, as well. And so from the way it worked last time and kind of how we asked them to work it going forward is, you know, they'll put the cones out and they'll have people on either end of it. And then obviously if emergency vehicles need to get through, they'll call cut and stop. And then, you know, when they're not actively using it, they'll open it up and send traffic back and forth through there as well. Also Tuesday, the council approved the solicitation of a contractor for the pilot demolition and rehabilitation grant program. Approved by the council last month, the program provides city funding for private attempts to eliminate or renovate dilapidated structures. Lyman says the program needs a separate administrator and someone with experience. I don't have any specific construction experience. We're asking for a contract employee with the city uh, for this limited pilot program to help us review those applications, look at the viability of the projects themselves, and then recommend on the council whether or not these projects would be successful. And then help that be on the admin side of verifying that the work is done to code and turning in receipts and getting the bills paid towards that. Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman. Glendwood officials took action this week designed to bolster emergency services. By a 4-1 to vote at its regular meeting Tuesday night, the Glenwood City Council approved the first reading of an ordinance that would bring Glenwood EMS services under the city's payroll within the city fire department. Glenwood Fire Chief Matt Gray tells KMA News the most considerable benefit is the ability to hire full-time ENTs and firefighter paramedics. 
Gray says the change would be a significant upgrade from the current situation. Currently, the Volunteer Fire Association pays the wages of the paramedics and EMTs that are on the actual, um, that are they're paid, staffed here during the day. This would move them underneath the city and give them some benefits and also be able to help with staffing issues. While the city has been providing the necessary equipment for the department, he adds the discussion of moving the services entirely under the city has been ongoing for nearly nine years. Grace's the hope is to hire five full-time employees and three part-time, along with the current volunteers, which he says is currently just over 20 individuals. However, he adds that recruitment and retention has been difficult without solid pay and benefits. With Council Bluffs and Omaha being close by, uh, we lose a lot of our EMTs, our firefighter EMTs and firefighter paramedics to Omaha Council Bluffs and other surrounding departments because of you know the pay and the, the benefits and um, this will kind of help bolster us up and hopefully grow it into the future. He adds the number of paid staff would likely need to grow due to an ever-increasing call volume. While the need for full-time employees has always been there due to a large call volume throughout Mills County, Grace says the trend of fewer volunteers has undoubtedly exacerbated the issue. People don't want to do this type of work anymore because they can go somewhere else, make more money, and they can sleep all night. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, plus they get time off with this type of career you know, you're working 24-hour shifts, you're up all night depending on, you know, call volume, and I mean, even the uh, full-time departments are having trouble with staffing. The ordinance requires a second and third reading before being formally adopted by the council. Some Sydney residents were expressing concern about an ongoing drainage pipe issue. During Monday night's workshop meeting, the Sydney City Council heard from Melody Van Syok regarding concerns about a drainage pipe that runs under the sidewalk on her neighbor's property at 403 Webster Street and also impacts her property at 401 Webster. Van Syok says the current pipe construction has led to cracks developing on the sidewalk on both properties and claims existing remedies were not those initially proposed by city officials and have not alleviated the issue. The drain has not been redesigned to drain straight out to go south out into the street as I was told by Kim Brown that it would be. Rather, a small extension was added to the current drainage pipe. Dirt has already filled in the mouth of the pipe extension, thereby, thereby preventing the drainage and flow of water to saturate the ground and extend my property, and again, thereby creating the same damage to concrete at 403 Webster and 401 Webster. Van Syok says the previous neighbors had built the runoff pipe to prevent water from building up in their basement and steer clear of her house. She says the current neighboring property owners recently had new concrete poured on their portion of the sidewalk and initially gave the contractor permission to relay her portion. However, due to the pipe not being altered from its original southwest direction towards her property, Van Sox says she attempted to call off the work but had little success communicating with city employees overseeing. After various attempts to contact someone in order to cancel having my sidewalk, portion of sidewalk replaced, asking that the message be relayed to not replace my sidewalk, and after writing on my portion do not replace, I then found that a portion was in fact replaced. I told the city street worker who was watching the work being done, Jason Ray, that I had uh, not wanted my section of the sidewalk replaced and had been told via text message 45 minutes earlier that he, Jason Ray, would be contacting me. He never contacted me, but the work had already been done. After eventually getting a phone from Ray, Van Sack adds he, she would not have to pay for the concrete work. Nonetheless, Van Sack says the drainage pipe would continue to cause the cracking issue and says a second adjustment made to the pipe would only have worsened the situation. There's also a mesh type of slop put over the end of it. 
I'm assuming to slow down the force of the water draining. That material has now been removed. I do not know by whom it was removed or when. However, the material would only have accomplished holding the water in place longer, causing it to soak in the ground, freeze the ground, which would then contract, and continue to ruin the concrete. And Syox says she would like to see the work done correctly, including extending the pipe further south to the street to prevent further sidewalk damage and her neighbors from paying twice for the same repairs due to the backed-up pipe. After city officials were unsure of whether the pipe could drain directly into the street or potentially become a curb drain, the council ultimately chose to have city engineer Steve Perry look into the situation. With an upcoming expansion, officials with the Lyle Corporation have requested an adjustment to one of its streets near the company's facilities in Clorinda. Meeting in regular session Wednesday evening, the Clorinda City Council heard a presentation from Lyle Corporation Chairman John Lyle on a proposed expansion plan adding an over 32,000 square foot building southeast of the current facilities. Lyle says the new building would increase the efficiency of handling assembled products by concentrating the work in one area. Out of the green building right here is where we do quite a bit of some types of assembly. We're going to move those employees into this new building uh, to do assembly work because when the parts are completed, then they're taken up here and packaged in this area and then shipped out here. It saves us one handling. And handling doesn't do anything for you except raise your costs. Lyle says the new building has been ordered but won't arrive until March or April 2023. However, he says that allows them to conduct the necessary dirt work and tear down a smaller building in the proposed 145 foot by 226 foot area. We are about five feet high with our soil here purposely. We're four feet low down here. We've got about uh, a little over a thousand cubic yards of dirt to move here. This building is right, this was the former fertilizer building of the old Farmers Union uh, lumber yard, which was in this area here that burned down in the 50s. Lyle says they have been using the building for storage and expects the dirt contractor to begin work in late August. While the company could use some extra hands already, Lyle says the expansion would likely add four to five new jobs. However, with the expansion, Lyle says they also hope to utilize a new loading dock on the eastern side of the facility. But currently, 7th Street along that side of the building is gravel. So Lyle proposed paving 7th Street from East Garfield Street to East Stewart Street to allow for easier truck access. It's roughly... 760 feet, roughly. That's using, you know, Google Earth's measuring thing, so that's probably within 5%. If you wanted to take it down to the corner down here on Main Street between the apartment buildings and Royal Hall, that would be another 316. However, Lyle says they're only strongly recommending from Garfield to Stewart, and the pavement, in his opinion, would not need to have a curb and gutter. Clarinda Mayor Craig Hill acknowledged the need to improve 7th Street's condition, particularly with the Lyle Corporation's expansion. Clarinda City Manager Gary McLarnon says he would get in touch with an engineer on the possibility of paving the requested portion of 7th Street. With apologies to Jim Nance, it's a KMA land tradition unlike any other. 145 children in grades 3 through 7 participated in the 31st annual Wabash Arts Camp. Activities took place this week at Shenandoah's National Guard Armory, as well as the Restore Depot and portions of Sportsman's Park. Kelly Carey is the camp's director. Carey tells KMA News the number of campers participating each year is amazing 
Some come from as far away as California. We do not advertise our camp. And every year we think, oh, maybe we better put the word out. And then we don't for whatever reason. And we always fill up. So I think older siblings pass the idea down to their younger siblings. Grandparents like to have their kids come back. In addition to the participants, the camp also draws instructors from a wide area, some including former campers. Carrie says the camp exposes students to a vast array of arts and crafts activities and teaches valuable life skills. Lacey Clark wrote a beautiful letter to the editor after she'd been in college a couple years, and she just said it was kind of like what I learned at Wabash Arts Camp, and it was problem-solving, seeing things holistically, you know, looking at what you have, and things work with your experience with art. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.